every time I talk to my agent, he's like, it's like, we're at a funeral together. And he's just like, yeah, maybe, maybe there'll be some leftover potato salad when we get to the reception. Oh my God. Hi, it's Lindsay Hunter. I'm the host of I'm a Writer But, a podcast where writers talk to a writer about anything. I, I get it. If people don't want to read about like the adult diapers that you wear after you have a baby, like that's totally fine. But let's not pretend that those can't be just as literary as like, I don't know, you know, Philip Roth's direction. <laughs> I wish you a, a wide audience, but you know, for this episode, you know, I feel like maybe people will turn it off a couple minutes in and that's okay with me. I'm a Writer But is a production of Lit Hub Radio and is available now wherever you get your podcasts. The vocation we have chosen is a veil of tears. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, Literary Director of the Sun Valley Writers Conference, and this is Beyond the Page. In this episode, I talk with Susan Orlean, longtime New Yorker staff writer and best-selling author of The Library Book and The Orchid Thief, about libraries and memory, about the eccentric nature of curiosity, and about the journalistic surprises and personal satisfactions of finally writing her own story. Let's dive in, shall we? Hey, Susan, how are you? It's great to see you. Great um, to see or you. This, th- what passes for seeing you in I, these It is, you know, times. I was thinking this morning, the last time we saw each other, we were on book tours crossing, crisscrossing all last summer. So we saw each other at literary festivals on Nantucket and the last one was in Steamboat Springs, Colorado in early September. Those incredibly beautiful places filled with tourists, filled with, you know, people traveling and eating. And and now we are, that whole world seems completely removed and sort of frozen in, in time. I feel like I, I feel nostalgia, for the first time in my life, nostalgia for something that happened six weeks ago. I know. You know, I'm, I was, it, weirdly enough, out of, this never happens, but the week before the lockdown, my husband and I happened to have three dinner parties at hmm. our house that week. And when, I mean, this was very unusual. We don't ordinarily have three dinner parties in a week, but it just turned out that way. And toward the end of the week, I was sort of glowing. I was also exhausted, but I was feeling like, wow, this is what life is all about. It's Mm -hmm. it's the fun of having people over and introducing people to people they didn't know previously and seeing friends. And I was really savoring it. And Mm -hmm. then there it went. Right. And I had even posted a picture on Instagram of the dinner party the day that the lockdown began because I thought, oh my gosh, when is the next time we're going to do that? And believe me, I never imagined that it would be this long in my naivete. Um, I will say, you've been in L.A. how long now, you and John? Uh, Actually, it's been nine years. So did you go out originally to start reporting on the library book? No, it was a complete uh, fluke. My husband was asked 
to help with a startup, a high-tech startup out here. We were at that time living in the Hudson Valley. We had had several horrible winters. And so when it was proposed that he come out and help with the startup in LA, I said, let's do it. It'll be really fun. We'll have a year or two break from winter. And I've always loved LA. I've always found it, in many ways, it reminds me of what New York City was like when I first moved there in 82. It was, it's just a mess in the best sense. It's this jumble and crazy mixture of people and dreams and aspiration. And it, it, it just has a wonderful feeling of rough and tumble that I miss in New York these days. So we came out here uh, and I had no intention, in fact, I had no intention of writing another book. Then I heard of this wild story about the largest library fire in the history of the United States, which took place in the magnificent LA Main Library. And I couldn't resist. As a result, what was a one-year or maybe two-year stint in L.A., I said originally to my husband, I'll, I can report this book really quickly, so we'll add like another year. Seven years later, when I finished the book, we realized <laughs> that we lived here. Um, it came, you know, it was incremental and then like boiling a lobster, you know, it was <laughs> slow. And then we found ourselves thoroughly poached. And at that point, we, I mean, I, as I said, I've always loved living here. Mm. Writing a book about LA was a, an uncanny, perfect way to come to know the city. I wanted to get into that because, uh, let me just read you, uh, you, may, you may remember this, but Michael Lewis, in Rave Review, he wrote about the library book um, in the New York Times Book Review. He wrote, Susan Orlean has once again found rich material where no one else has bothered to look for it. Her book is less a straightforward story than an exercise in mining her intense feelings for a subject. And I love that because to me, it does really get at one of the essential things I love so much about your work too, which is basically your curiosity becomes a vehicle for your feeling, not just your observations, but all of it sort of funneled together. And, you know, I'll, I'm interested in whatever you want to write about. And it's so it, you're able to take something and bring it to life and to make the reason for us being curious about it uh, vivid in front of us as it's happening. And so what really interested me, yes, it's an amazing story. And we you can get into some of that about the first half of the book really is about the fire that burned the library. It was so horrific, which you'll describe in a moment. But then, you know, as the book goes on and it moves into the second half, it kind of becomes, it seems almost as though that's the prelude for the real subject of the book, which is your I don't know, you're, you're sort of loving, intense curiosity and emotion about this place, this, this society, this ecosystem. 
And so I really want to know, as I always do uh, with you, which is what brought that forth, not just your curiosity, but the intense feeling that you came to have for it all. What was it that changed about that that surprised you as you reported this book and lived it all these all the years you were making it? Well, first of all, I really appreciate your your sense of the book that way because, of course, that's the way I most want it to be read. Um, yeah, it's an amazing crime story, it uh, is. but in a way, the 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 crime story is uh, both literally and figuratively the the sort of match strike that lights up this this bigger story and i find myself often curious about two different things one is i'm curious about why i find something interesting i mean the world is filled with a million stories and a million possible topics and one will catch me in a way that i can't shake it off and then it becomes a, a sort of exploration into my own reaction to it. Why this? Why did mm-hmm. this story, when at that point, as I said, I really wasn't looking to do another book. I didn't want to do another book. I just didn't want to have seven more years spent on a subject. But why this? What was getting to me? The other thing that I, I find myself really drawn to is what are the, the self-made families that we exist within? What, what constitutes the sort of chosen community that you identify with? In a sense, the question is, what's a family? What is what does belonging mean? Seeing the library, and I'd never thought of a library this way. I'd never spent this kind of time in a library. But seeing the community of people who work there, their connection to one another, their connection to the history, their connection to the patrons, the library's connection to the city, it was just... It was as if I were seeing these nesting dolls of connection in a way that I had never, really never thought about before. And going even further into that, it it became very much a, an opening for me to think about my family and in particular my relationship with my mother because going to the library, our trips together were so, um, they were a ritual that was so meaningful to our relationship. And it had such a, a significance that I had never, that I never really recognized or noticed. And it came back to me in such a, an intense way that my feelings about the library got very wrapped up in my own feelings about the memory of my childhood. Mm-hmm. And as it happened, unfortunately, 
um, my mother had developed dementia at the time I started working on the book. And so she was losing her memory as I was really excavating my memory of, of that particular, very charmed ritual of going to the library together and how it had a, a, a and I use the word ritual very intentionally because it had an almost sacred quality about it. It wasn't like going to the dry cleaner or, you know, it, it had a very specific rhythm and feel to it that I hadn't thought about in many, many decades. And being in the library, as I began my curiosity about this fire, brought that back to me in such a powerful way. So it was, it was my own, um, family as well as the way the library represents a sort of family right for Even the city. something you you mentioned some time ago it was a senegalese idiom uh i think i have it here uh that when someone dies their library burns down but that's a phrase in in, in senegalese and i'm thinking about your mother with that and how we organize and memory yeah. And, you know, what what a brain is and, a, a, you know, and what a library is and what our relations with each other are. Well, um, it was, and, and that expression, that idiom, I had found it while I was reporting. I didn't quite understand it, but I, I found it interesting enough that I wrote it out on an index card and I had it hanging over my desk. And I kept thinking, I'll find somewhere in the book to fit this in, but I, I don't know where. And also, it would be useful for me to understand it before I put it in. And then it, it clicked in a way that it became really the essential unifying theme for the book because it was both about our internal memories and knowledge and fantasies and stories that we store very much like a library. I mean, as I get older, I find myself sometimes when I'm trying to remember something, I literally feel like I'm scanning a bookshelf and thinking, what was that guy's name? And I go, no, wrong, wrong shelf until I find the name or find the memory and pull it out. Seeing my mother losing her memory was absolutely as if literal blocks of information were being pulled off the shelf and burned. And similarly, the burning of a, of a library in a community erases the communal memory. Right. Certainly that was absolutely um, literally true in an era where books were not produced in great quantity. I don't know if you've ever read The Swerve um, by Sleepy Greenblatt. Yeah. And, you know, the idea that there were millions of books written, maybe not millions, but many, many, many books written that are gone, gone, gone. I mean, it used to be there was one copy of a book or maybe 10 copies of a book. The and Great Library it, at Alexandria. I yeah, mean, it's just yeah. gone. And yeah. what's weird is 
we don't even know what we lost at Alexandria, which is one of those great late at night kind of spooky existential mm-hmm. thoughts, which is how how do you know what you've lost if there's no record of it? It's right. It's a um, it's a very kind of shattering idea mm-hmm. that we, we don't even know what we don't know. Also, I was struck all over again. Uh, obviously, in New York, we have the New York Public Library, which we can't go into at the moment, but um, libraries as public spaces where you can be alone together. And, there's, and, one, there's one point where you say, you ask a librarian if he likes his job. And this gets in the notion of people coming together in order to be able to be on their own. And he answers with a quote from Albert Schweitzer, who was his hero. And he says, all true living is face to face. And I mean, how do you feel you deal with people face to face? You're one of the great reporters. And I know you're a huge fan of Janet Malcolm and Joan Didion, as am I. And uh, just what it is to sit and have people trust you and to catalog and observe and make sense of things. And now you can't do that. You were telling me that you just are closing your newest piece. I don't even know what it's about, but you were saying it's the first piece you've ever written where you were not able to actually do the reporting in person. It, it's uh, really been a, I, I mean, initially I thought I simply can't do this. It's, it's not, how can I write a story where I am not going to see anything or meet anyone or feel or touch something? It, it, is this going to be absolutely static and dead on the page? I knew that I could get the information. It's out there. And, you know, we're very lucky to have the internet because before the internet, if we couldn't have gone into a library, it would have been extremely difficult to report a story. So I did have this powerful tool where I could find whatever I needed factually on the internet. But I thought this is, how can I write this story? How can it be a narrative if I've just sat in my, literally in the chair you're seeing me in right now, how can I have this story be animated in any way, to feel felt in any way? So what would you do to get a, how did you manage to get around that? One thing that I did is I, I kind of leaned back on the, the parts of my books that have been based on historical material. And when I first began, I think it was in The Orchid Thief, it was the first time I was writing a long section that was just history. Nobody was alive to talk to. Um, There were things I could go see, but that feeling of there not being an animated presence really unnerved me. And I thought, I don't know how to write this. It took a while to feel that I that I could digest the material and as a storyteller, animate it. That it was the telling of it that would give it that life and that presence. 
So I, I relied on that same, um, I hope, I mean, we'll see when the piece comes out, but I thought I'm, I'm digging deep into this very odd story that nobody would think to write. I'm really compelled by it and I find it fascinating. It's so much more interesting than I imagined. And it has to be my curiosity that mm -hmm. is going to illuminate this. That, And it's not something where every other sentence you say, I was so curious that I called this person or that person. As much as it is a, a, an undercurrent that moves you through a narrative. And it's, and for me, this story became so interesting that I was kind of talking about it constantly to the, um, the two people who I'm quarantined with who were like, okay, <laughs> enough. But I was really excited by it and excited about what I was learning. And I thought that's going to be the texture of the piece, which mm -hmm. is this this sort of burning interest in the subject. I talked to a ton of people on the phone, and that's not the same as talking to people in person. It's not terrible. It's not useless, but the the serendipity of what you learn when you're in the presence of another person is lost. A phone call is very surgical. You mm -hmm. call someone, you're asking specific questions. With luck, they're articulate and interesting, and you get what you were seeking, but you don't get anything else. When you go to interview someone in person, there are... It, it's it's the difference between the frame of a sofa and an upholstered sofa. There's just so much more, much of which won't end up in the story, but to interview someone in person, let's say in their home, there are millions of details, the richness of what you learn about them, about uh, the things you wouldn't think to ask. Mm -hmm. because you're not sitting with them. You know, a phone call, I mean, I know what I want to find out from someone, and that's what I find out, but I don't find out anymore. But you come, you come also, in when you're in person, to be open to these little events, these yeah. little, you know, I mean, E.B. White used to talk about sort of being lucky with, with something happening. Yeah, I mean, that's one of my foundational quotes, which is, you have to be prepared to be lucky. That's right. Exactly. And you, you know, so you trust that and you've been doing that your whole life. And it comes back to what we said in the beginning, what Michael Lewis was writing about as well. I mean, that sense of feeling, the, the excitement that you bring becomes our excitement and our curiosity. But now you're reporting not in person using the, yeah. the craft and the tools, but you have to learn to trust something else which is that it's, you have to really give value to your own curiosity and your own interest and turn that into the narrative. And so that leads to um, my last question really, which is I know that you are working on a memoir now and 
these two aspects. One is this learning to trust your own narrative and the, you know, the push of that above all, um, that that becomes sort of the living presence, if you will, you know, the thing that you're open to and looking for surprises in. And then also the question of the personal experience, um, the memories of your mother, of working on the library book and somehow if these were events that led you to want to write a memoir or if there's some particular event that you have long wanted to um to write about i mean it's it's you you've written so much about other people that you yeah. find interesting and now here you are it's um a combination of things certainly writing the library book and writing a fair amount about my mother and about my emotions, about our our trips together, her imbuing me with the love of books and of libraries, and seeing how powerfully people responded to those parts of the book. And I always feel almost shy about I always feel like, who cares about me? I, I'm, I'm writing about the library. I don't need to throw in anything about me. And yet, being constantly surprised by how much people respond to it. So I think that started me thinking, all right, I, I don't have to suddenly think I'm the most interesting person in the world, but I my my story and my own memories have have some merit and as someone said to me i'm always championing how you don't have to be a celebrity Absolutely. to warrant being written about and that's all i've ever written about really are people who most people would never write about so I guess now I have to consider myself one of those people as well. But additionally, I, I realize that um, I feel very strongly about the philosophical underpinnings of what I do and why I do it. And I think that I've had, I have had a really interesting life. I've written about a wild range of things. Not all of the stories about what I've written end up in the story not, and the experiences I've had doing them because they're often stories that people, I mean, the general reaction to my stories are, I, I have no reason to think I want to read this, but I will read it. And then, you know, so, that's my brand. My brand is, I know, I mean, I remember when I wrote The Orchid Thief and having so many people come up to me and say, boy, I never thought I'd read a book about orchids. And I said, well, I never thought I'd write a book about orchids. So we're even, um, but it's so interesting. And so there, you know, the story of my stories, uh, it is really interesting. Um, it's not been an ordinary life. And, and I think 
the question, and again, I get asked this often, is why did I pick these stories? I mean, why, why this set of subjects when I have the good fortune of really being able to write about whatever I want to write about? Um, and it felt, it felt like I had the confidence at this point in my career to have a conversation with my readers because that's really how I see the book. It would be an extended dinner conversation with someone saying, how did you get into doing what you do? And um, why do you do what you do? Well, and I, I, I think I, I'm pretty good at a yeah. dinner party. So that's what you, I mean. You are. I, I love the idea that you have sort of finally piqued your own curiosity. <laughs> well, you know, that's like really that. what it is. And that's it. And, you, you know, you, we, you know a good story when you see one. And it's it's very, um, I don't know, I, I love the idea that, that you've suddenly noticed yourself in a different way. And, you know, it's the stories that you've been telling all along that have brought you there in some way. So, uh, well, I can't wait uh, to go to that dinner party myself. And uh, I can't wait to see you in person, but thanks so much. It, it has really been uh, just wonderful to talk to you and hear Same what you're doing. Here. Yeah. Same here. Same and, here. And I hope soon in person in Sun Valley. Definitely. Definitely. All right. Thank you, Susan. Stay well. Bye. You too. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Beyond the Page. You can catch previous podcast episodes as well as installments of SVWC Now, our series of video conversations at lidhub.com or at the Sun Valley Writers Conference website, svwc.com. Stay safe, everybody. I'm John Burnham Schwartz. Thanks so much for listening. Beyond the Page is produced by John Burnham Schwartz and James Tooley. Original music by Dean Grinsfelder and production support provided by Jay Shilliday and the Network Studios. 